For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. How many of you uh, have ever seen this? You recognize this building? Anyone? I'm going to educate you. I wouldn't expect you to. I know only one person in here that can surely say yes because he took this picture. This is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Okay, it's in Jerusalem, in Old Town. And, and this, this church, this building, is very, very significant because, and of course, like we all know that people do their best about these sites and there's different views and opinions on what happened where. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre holds two sacred sites that the building has been built upon over a rock outcropping. And one site is the tomb of Jesus, or what was believed to be the tomb of Jesus, on one side of, of the outcropping that, was, that has been excavated. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert, they didn't find anything. Um, but secondly, on the other side is what's known as Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified, the hill. So this, this is built just outside of the old city walls of Jerusalem because crucifixions happened outside of the walls. Um, so, so this is a very, very sacred building. That's all you need to know first. Um, and it's been protected for Christians because it's considered a holy sacred site for Christians. It's been protected since 613 AD, all right? Um, regardless of who's been in power in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? That even when non-Christians have been in power in Jerusalem, this has been held as a sacred site for the last, whatever, 1,500 years. Um, and during that time, six different groups of Christians have jostled to control the space, all right? Who gets what? Who it really belongs to? Who gets control? Um, the Latin Catholic, the Greek, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Church, the Coptic Church, the Syriac Church, and the Ethiopian Church. They all, they all lay claim to this. Each tradition now, since 1853, there was this truce called the status quo. And each, each of those traditions now has carefully delineated turf. So there's little chapels within this building for each of those groups that they get to manage and take care of. Um, so that everybody has their, their, their own space. But there's still so many disagreements and there's still power plays. Christians have had so much trouble getting along over this building that the group that opens and unlocks and locks this building every single day is a group of Muslims. A tribe, all right, called the Nusaiba tribe. And they've been doing it for over a thousand years now. Over a millennium, their people every morning have opened up these doors and every evening have, have closed them because no Christians can agree on who gets to do it. Uh, disconnection between the groups, I, I mean, it continues today. But, but one evidence, one sign of that is evidenced by a little detail in the picture here. And this, Dwayne, Dwayne took this picture in 2017 when he traveled to Jerusalem. But I want you to see something, because this is a holy, beautiful, sacred site. Do you see anything unique? 
See that sucker right there? That ladder has been in that exact spot, untouched by human hands since 1757. And the reason that that ladder is there is because nobody can agree who should get the right to remove it. Yeah. Oh, boy. Like, we should all be groaning at this, right? Because who gets to touch it? Well, who gets to affect the out, out, outside of the building, you know? Like, like that's, that, that means that you have control in some way. So they just decided, you know what? Nobody touches anything anymore. And so this beautiful, holy, sacred site has a big ladder in front of it. And people look at the church, and it's beautiful, and it should be beautiful, but there's this ladder that's not being touched right in front. <sighs> oh, here's another little, little thing. Right inside that window, that's Golgotha. That's where the crucifixion, that's, that's the room that, that memorializes the spot that Jesus was supposed to be crucified. Let me tell you, friends, what happened inside that window should have a profound impact on what happens outside that window. And yet the latter remains. Before we get too critical, however, because we can be like, oh my, yeah, look at those people. They just can't get along. We have our own ladders all across God's church. Things that sit there unaddressed, untouched, and they make God's church less beautiful. And when we talk about them, we begin to help make new progress. Uh, we've been talking about the power of the cross for this Lent series. We talked about the power of, cross, of, of the cross to dismantle violence by, by Jesus absorbing violence, but also by, by, by ending the need for constant retribution. Jesus has changed the cycles of violence. We talked about the cross's impact on shame. And the cross's impact on guilt, how, how the cross proclaims God's forgiveness once and for all in a profound way that changes us. This week, I want to talk about the cross's role in reconciliation in creating a sacred community. The crucifixion is absolutely central, what Jesus did on the cross, in God breaking down things that separate. There is still a... Uh, a ladder in front of God's church in many ways. It's right in front for everyone to see, but it's not being, being touched. And, uh, and in contrast to the church of the Holy Sepulchre here, um, this untouched ladder, it kind of brings further pain and separation year after year. So it's time to talk about that ladder more, and it's time to do our part in taking it down. Um, we're on a journey as a church, and it's been a journey we've been on for years, but it's kicking up a notch, to talk more and to do better in regards to racial justice and to valuing the stories, the faith, the wisdom, and the experiences of people of color and of people whose culture is different than the predominant culture that often is what we hear. Uh, there is hurt in our world. There is dehumanization. There are issues of justice that breaks God's heart. And too often, uh, generally, white churches have remained silent or disconnected from the real work of being part of that solution. At the heart of Jesus is reconciliation, and at the heart of reconciliation is the work of the cross. Reconcile means to just bring two things together, okay, that have been separated. So the imagery of what Jesus does 
in the Gospels, as it refers to the cross, is breathtaking. The work of reconciliation, of bringing together two things that have been held apart, of, of when we go our own selfish ways and make our own choices and, and do things that, that the word for sin is, is miss the mark, miss God's heart. We are pulled away and by our own actions, separating ourselves from God. And Jesus says, I take that and I wipe it away. I wash it away and and it's reconciled. But there's more going on here too. And this is where it gets really interesting. The the story in in, uh, Matthew 27, right when Jesus died, this, this incredible thing happens. And it's kind of talked about sometimes, but it's also breezed over a lot. It says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, and when Jesus cried out, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, now let's talk about the curtain of the temple. The curtain of the temple was the most sacred space in all of the, uh, the, the Hebrew world, all of the Jewish world and tradition. And, and this was where the Holy of Holies was. In other words, the most sacred space where the presence of God was believed to have dwelt. All right? And so only the high priest would even be able to go in there and offer sacrifices. So when this curtain is torn, it is a proclamation and a declaration to the world that God is no longer inaccessible. Literally, it's this image of the Spirit of God being sent out from only being available in this one place to being available everywhere. Only being available to this one person to being available everywhere. The things that separate us from God on the cross have been destroyed. The dividing wall has been destroyed. But here's another really interesting thing about the temple. Only certain people were allowed into that temple. Only the Jewish people. They had been the gatekeepers of the faith, of the religion. And as such, Gentile people, non-Jewish people, were not even allowed to go beyond the third or so layer of the temple. There were different rooms where Based on your gender or your ethnicity, you were only allowed to get to here, and then you were, on penalty of death, prohibited from going any further. And so all of a sudden, when this, when this temple veil, when this curtain is torn, the separation of the gatekeepers of the religion also became nullified, okay? Certain people saying, I get to lay claim to this. I have, I have a grasp on the whole truth, and you have to come through me to get there. This was done away with for good. Um, So the spirit gets unleashed in the world, but also there's this destruction of one people group being the gatekeepers for others. And if you don't like the word destruction, think of it like this. There's an opening. There's a broadening. Okay? Jesus was for everyone. And so... um, So the Spirit was now going to be moving among and through any people. So, by the way, this should keep every one of us disciples real humble and eager to continue to learn through God's working in people, in culture, in perspectives that are not within our familiar norms. And the best part about it was that this church, this new thing that the Spirit was being unleashed on, would be a glimpse, would be the glimpse of the new humanity that Jesus was forming. So when the temple curtain is torn, all of the Spirit of God going out is creating a new people for God. Something that is more beautiful than anything that's ever existed before. 
something that would be known as the body of Christ. What imagery. It's so beautiful. This was going to be radical, right? It was going to be a new family that followed different family rules than the ones that any of the tribes had abided for for all of history in any culture. So that's what Paul's speaking of when he says that Jesus is our reconciliation and Jesus is our peace, right? He becomes the bridge, the one who breaks down things that separate us between us and God and the one who breaks down things that separate us between us and one another. And he does that through the cross. It's really interesting that Jesus says, put to death their hostility, because this, in Ephesians, he's specifically talking about Jews and, and Gentile people here. Um, but he's talking about a lot, but, but that's, that's where the conversation is kind of focused on, because what he's saying is, you guys come from different traditions, but God is trying to form you into one beautiful new humanity, so don't miss that that's a big part of what the cross is doing. Um, so in the midst of this, that word hostility, the word, the word is ekthros, and, and what it means, it's fascinating. Ready for this? It, it's, it's where the root of hatred comes from, too, um, in many of, many of the, the definitions within the scriptures. But uh, Hebrew language is always, um, uh, it's always visual. It's, it's image-rich. So a Hebrew word um, is always an action that we imagine doing, okay? It's just, it's, it's one of the unique things about, about the, the language. Um, but that word that's translated here, or that, um, the, the root of that, is to be so unfamiliar with something that you react by being repelled. Literally, literally, hostility means intense fear of what you don't understand. To be so unfamiliar. And, and I think, when I look at this, I think about Jesus breaking down the walls of hostility. We are, so, we, we are so unfamiliar with the beauty and the goodness of the kingdom of God and God's heart that, that we, we, we turn in other ways. We, we move away from it. God is, the, this, this world of such grace and such love and such care is so radical that, that we almost turn in another way because it's more comfortable to have control of, our, of ourselves and to live in the rules that we've always lived with. So, so there's hostility there that Jesus breaks down the wall for. There's unfamiliarity. Jesus says, you have no idea how, how much I love you. You have no idea how good I am. But there's also hostility between us and other people. Hostility that, that comes maybe from being so unfamiliar with another that we distance ourselves. And so this is what we get in Ephesians 2. I just read it. Um, and and it, uh, Paul goes on. He says, He came, Jesus, and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Now before we start to rank, far and near here should mean access and not access. So it's not people that, who are super holy and people that are horribly unholy. What he's talking about here is with Jews and Gentiles, he's talking about people who were near who had complete access and people who were far who had no access to the love and the grace and the message and the good news of God. And he came and preached peace to both of you. Shalom, wholeness. All right? And so it goes on. For through him we both have access. See that? Um, both have access to the... Are we there? Are we still good? Okay. Um, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You see all these words of, of separation, right? But you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you're also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There is so much goodness in that passage for what God's doing as he brings people groups together around Jesus. But I love the idea of members of a new household. Members of a new household, because uh, in our uh, EHR course, Emotionally Healthy Relationships, we often talk about like, so what are the habits that you've learned in your own household and your own families, and what are the new habits that Jesus wants to teach you in the family of God? And so this, this is the new family of God that we've been brought into because of what Jesus has done. So understanding Jesus' work on the cross means understanding that your family is now bigger than you realize. It's really beautiful. It's also super challenging. Your family is now bigger than you realize. For the early church, that meant understanding that God was doing something dynamic in non-Jewish people or, or Gentiles. In Acts 15, uh, we're not going to get into this because it's complicated, but the, the council in Jerusalem is trying to figure all this out because after Pentecost, the Spirit's been unleashed and all of these Greek and Roman people are beginning to like experience Jesus and want to come and become a part of things. And uh, it's not a perfect parallel to our journey because of a number of things, but their conclusions are really helpful. Um, remember, early on, Jesus' followers were clearly understood as by themselves, as a subset of Judaism, okay? Not a complete separation, but a subset of Judaism, the early, the early ones. That's why so many Jewish customs religiously were still a part of this process, and Jesus and Paul are often trying to help them understand the religious attitudes that you are bringing in are no longer necessary and helpful, like this, this need to, to do all of the external things, circumcision, all this other stuff. Um, but so, so their culture and their way of seeing the world was enormously different. Even as Christ followers, their culture and their way of seeing the world was enormously different than Greeks and Romans. And, um, and what they figured out was essentially what they said was when they came together and said, how are we going to deal with this? What's, what's up with this new community? Um, they said, you actually, I'm paraphrasing, you actually don't need to become Jewish like us to be faithful. You don't need to express yourself like our cultural comfort level in order to be with Jesus. All right? Jesus is making a community that's intended to be together, and it doesn't mean washing away the uniqueness of your culture or your backstory. And so, so they, they, rec- they, they say, here's what needs to happen, and they say a couple things, and they're all related to temple worship because that really destroyed the witness. So they talk about um, sexual immorality, which specifically was about... Um, some things that happened in worship at pagan temples. Um, it goes beyond that, of course, but specifically that's, that's the area that people were losing their witness over. There was temple prostitution, all sorts of stuff. And then secondly, they said food that's been sacrificed to idols because that looks like you're worshiping another. Not because there was anything wrong with it at the time, but they said, why don't you move out of those practices? But we understand that culturally you're still going to have your own distinctives and you don't need to become Jewish to be Christians. <laughs> don't need to become like us. So there's beauty and there's something that we need to learn there in becoming the new family. So it means setting our eyes on Jesus together and growing with one another in what we're seeing. Um, that's, that's the world of the Spirit right there. So it meant some major changes for the predominantly Jewish church to learn how much Jesus was at work beyond their familiar norms. They were missing out. They were missing out on such an opportunity to learn of God's largeness, of God's beauty and wisdom through lives that they had never been able to see it in before. 
And this is the ongoing work of the church, friends. To learn where God's image and kingdom extends beyond our comfort levels and to learn where we may, even accidentally, be stifling a brother or sister for opportunities to help us grow into God's household together. That's important work today. So when it's written in Galatians 3 that, there, that uh, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile or slave-free, male-female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul was not saying that you wouldn't look at the world through your own unique lens or that you would somehow lose your distinctives or your identity and the w- in the way that you would see the world. But the language was about the dynamics that existed between the two peoples, right? Male and female. In Christ, the power dynamics that leads to this sort of thing and to one person saying, well, I call the shots because I'm blank. That is wiped away. The devalue of, of women in a culture that could, they could be owned by people. That's not how it's going to be in the body of Christ. So, so it's the dynamics that exist, not the differences that are eradicated. Um, so, so in the sacred community of Christ, the things that keep groups and keeps people at arm's length get destroyed. So you'd now be able to share Life in unique ways because Jesus is bringing you together through the power of his spirit. And Jesus is the focal point in your life. It goes beyond, all of this goes beyond our our journey of addressing and talking about issues of race. But it absolutely includes it. Uh, Before we we share too much more, and we are going to be spending some really, really uh, meaningful time unrolling what God's been starting to stir for the next season of, of Life Path. Um, but, uh, but before that, I want to return to the centrality of the, uh, of the cross. And, um, and I, and I want to let us begin to, to lean into the work that we have to do if we are to take the work of the cross seriously and understand that it has far-reaching impacts on our daily interactions toward creating a reconciled world. I want to share from two theologians... Uh, who kind of force us to see how we can't look at Jesus' work on the cross without understanding its call to become a people that dismantles racism and racial disconnection. And yes, by the way, this is going to be uncomfortable for some of us. That's a part of this journey. Um, I want to uh, I want to share an excerpt from an interview with Dr. James Cohn from 2006. Uh, Dr. Cohn is, uh, he wrote this for a, a Jesuit magazine, uh, he, is, he was, he passed away in uh, 2018, and um, he was the distinguished professor, a distinguished professor at Union Theological Seminary um, in New York City, and he, was an, and he was the author of a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and um, has really led the way in helping um, describe uh, black theology and um, understanding the unique ways that um, black communities over the course of the generations have seen the gospel as good news, but also where maybe uh, generally white churches and white theologians have really missed, missed out on the fullness of it. And so it's important to hear this. So, so the question that was posed to Dr. Cohn, and he's just, he's, he's brilliant, but the question that was, po- was posed, and this is interesting because 2006, so it's before a lot of the conversations that have risen to the surface again these past couple years. The question that was posed was, are American theologians saying enough about racism? And here's what he said. And this, is, this is excerpts from his interview because it, it was too long for me to, to give the whole thing. Are American theologians saying, oh, here's Dr. Cohn. Are American theologians saying enough about racism. 
He says, no, they're not. Both Catholic and Protestant theologians do theology as if they don't have to engage with the problem of white supremacy and racism. And he speaks a bit about the, the, the 60s and what happened in the civil rights movement. And he says it's almost harder now because back then the country acknowledged racial problems more directly. Fighting for racial justice in the 1960s was one of the church's finest hours. But now having confronted it years ago, they think they've made the racial situation better, whereas in some ways it's worse. If we look at the statistics of African-American communities with regards to imprisonment, healthcare, education, and employment, we're worse off today than during those, um, we're worse off today in areas like these. So I want to challenge white theologians and their churches to speak out in a sustained and prophetic way about racial injustice. I think their silence stems partly from a distorted understanding of what the gospel means in a racially broken world. To believe in the gospel means creating solidarity with the oppressed. Jesus' cross is God's solidarity with the weak and the lost. The cross stands at the center of the Christian faith of African Americans because Jesus' suffering was similar to their American experience. Just as Jesus Christ was crucified, so were black people lynched. White people who did the lynching were respectable members of Christian churches and saw no contradictions between murdering black people and the gospel of Jesus. White people did not see this contradiction partly because white theologians failed to point it out with sustained conviction and passion. They interpreted Jesus' cross without any reference to the suffering black people in their midst. It's amazing to me that few theologians have even mentioned lynching in connection with the cross or said a public word against it when it was so widespread. And then later he says, while white theologians failed to see the connection between Jesus' suffering and the African-American experience, black people did not miss it. When they initially heard from white missionaries and preachers the story of Jesus, they saw a mirror of themselves in his suffering. Recently, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution for failing to enact federal anti-lynching legislation decades ago, marking the, first, marking the first time the body has apologized for America's treatment of black people. I contend that white Catholic and Protestant theologians should make a similar apology to African Americans for their silence. Perhaps if they could acknowledge their past failures, they could see the need to speak out against racial injustice today. That's the end of his quote. So we're back to me. <laughs> Make that clear. Uh, the cross is God's entering into humanity's brokenness and making a way for recon reconciliation in so many different ways if we let it. I want us to own the fact that far too often, and I, I don't like the phrase white church because we are not, but generally we are, and the culture that has formed it partially because my wife and I were the founders. <laughs> um, the culture that has formed it is absolutely predominantly white that speaks to it. Um, but we are not a white church, but we are generally white with many people um, that have a comfort level with predominant white American Christianity. So it's important that we acknowledge that, but I always get super nervous about any labels because uh, in zero way do I want to... Um, miss the fact that God is doing something and has been doing something for years to help us continue to grow um, in, in, uh, in a more beautiful expression of who God is and who the church is. Um, but I want to own the fact that far too often, uh, predominantly or generally white churches have ignored and even perpetuated the losses of communities of color. We've also missed out so much on the incredible partnership 
vitality, and insights that come from connections with Christians whose cultural expressions do not manifest or reflect mainstream American Christianity. Uh, to challenge us to continue to move, and this was a, a beautiful article that was written by Dr. Tim Keller called The Sin of Racism in Gospel, uh, Gospel Quarterly in 2020. And he ended his article um, by challenging uh, people and saying that in order for us to, to practice God's kingdom of racial equality and bring it to bear, we have to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So in other words, we've got to embody what we say that we believe in real ways. And here's, here's kind of his, his final encouragement. He says, not every community in the U.S. is multi-ethnic, like the, the end goal of, of just being a colorful church, <laughs> we might say. That's not always exactly the, the, the point or the end goal, because not every community looks like that, right? Not every community in the, in the U.S. is multi-ethnic, and so not all churches can be. But this is regardless. But one of the ways to bear fruits of repentance is for the members of more and more churches to make the sacrifices of power and comfort needed to form churches that show how in Christ the racial and cultural barriers that divide the world outside the church do not divide them inside because of the power of the gospel. Our world is really broken in a whole lot of ways. One thing that we can do is within Life Path here, begin to become a kind of community that people on the outside can look in at and say, wow, that functions so different. The way people relate to another, one another, the way people love one another, the way they listen and learn from one another, the humility, specifically across areas there where there are major, major divisions in our world. We have an opportunity to show the world a better third way. And so we are unashamedly going to be trying to do the work of that at Life Path. That's our heart. We want to grow and practice shalom, God's peace, God's reconciliation. And so uh, I'm going to invite the task force on racial, racial justice to come up, and they're going to share a little bit of the work that they have been doing um, in partnership with many of you for the last 10 weeks or so. And uh, you should have gotten an email with a link to the recommendations that they have been working on bringing to us. Y'all can come on up here. And our goal, if we can, is to bring Britton Lennon onto the screen here. Oh, man, that's like one of those things. Good. Yes, please. We have copies of, of this stuff. So, all right, friends. By the way, yeah, yes. These, these six deserve a huge thank you. Um, for a lot of work, but, uh, but I, I have a feeling that there's more to clap and applaud on the other end of this once we, uh, once we hear about this a little bit more. So I will get off this stage, friends, and you can take over. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. These are yours. Oh, you can just flip it on when you're ready, whoever... Okay, I'm, I guess I'm sorry. And make sure, you, yeah, make sure you keep it right up in your, in your face so we can all hear it. Okay, so uh, first I guess I'll introduce all of us. I'm Lori. Um, this is Amanda, Ian, Rob, and Britt and Lennon are up on the stage. So um, I, I first want to talk about why. Why did we 
create this racial uh, justice task force. And I think, I think uh, Keith really, really identified the why really good. And I don't need to repeat anything that he already said. But that was one of our biggest questions that we got when people answered the, uh, the survey and when even people on the task force, when we were putting it together, like, why did you guys even do this? What, what's this about? Did something happen that made you do this? And on one hand, we could say, no, nothing happened because, like, nothing happened, right? Like, nobody did anything that caused somebody else to get upset or whatever within, the ch within this church. But something happened. Um, you know, we, we watched a black man be killed by a white cop on our screens. We, we watched a, a black man be gunned down in a neighborhood by a white uh, father and son. We watched white supremacists storm our capital. So you know that all that stuff happened like within a 12-month period of time? And so, or maybe 18 months, or I mean, really close together anyway. And you know, we haven't been talking about it. But it impacts us, right? It impacts us, and, our, and, and we want to know, like, wait a second. Aren't we people of peace? Uh, don't, doesn't our church teach about grace? Don't we know that God loves reconciliation? Don't we believe that every human being is made in the image of God? Those are the people that we are, right? I mean, that's, that's the ideal that we're trying to go to, not because of who we are not, but because who we are and who we want to be. So in the midst of that, not reacting to something that may have happened, to try to prove that we're not a certain kind of church, we're not a racist church or something like that, some kind of crazy idea that might come up. We wanted to decide who are we, who are we in relation to what we teach and what we believe and in the standard that Christ has set before us. And how are we going to find out where we are unless we ask everybody? We know we're the ideal and we know what's been going on. But where are we? Who are we? And so we decided to make a task force just in act, with the exact reason to ask everyone, where are we, guys? You know, um, what are you thinking about in regards to this? And what do... Uh, what do you believe? So we, um, we did a task force that was to carry out this um, work, and it was informed by the recommendations of all of you, and um, so that we could start initiating these kind of conversations that are really difficult and uncomfortable for many of us. And we had uh, conversations with 34 people in our community and six people outside of our community. And that's a huge, huge um, outgrowth. Uh, it's a huge response 
and we got a lot of really cool information. And we were charged with completing this work in a like a six week to three month window. And then um, after that, after this, we're done. So, <laughs> so we're not your ministry going forward, you know, to do this because now this is a ministry for all of us. And so now that I've hopefully answered the why, I'm going to pass it over to Ian to talk about the, the how. Thanks, Lori. Um, so as she mentioned, um, the task force was brought together to help explore uh, potential blind spots that we as a church may have. Um, just wanted to give you a little, a high-level overview, just the overall process of the, the, the task force went through to put together recommendations that we released to the church um, earlier this week. Um, so in November 2021 is when uh, Life at the Vision team um, put forth this task force and appointed Lori and myself as um, co-chairs. Uh, and part of the charge was that um, Lori and I would choose three to five additional people to join uh, the task force. Um, you might have recalled that back in December, uh, we put out an open call to the Life Path community to express interest in participating on this task force. Um, and we selected four additional people to join um, the task force as, as a representation of uh, diversity of backgrounds in our church. Um, and Lori mentioned uh, these additional four people, Amanda, Rob, uh, Britt, and Lennon. Um, we as a task force met by Zoom um, every other week from about mid-January through mid-April. Um, it was spanning about 10 weeks. Um, and these meetings really involved a lot of just, just discussion. Discussion of, of planning the work that we were going to do, um, planning how we wanted to understand and gather information and insights from you all, as well as people from outside the church. Um, and then also just reflecting on what are the recommendations that we may want to put forth, again, being informed by the information that you all and those outside the church that we spoke with um, were saying. So I do want to just make it very, very clear that the recommendations that we put forth were informed by the information that you, were, that you gave to us. It was not just our own ideas and our own things that we wanted to put down on paper. We really, each of us read through every single response, some, sometimes multiple times, to really understand the spirit of what you all were saying. Um, Lori mentioned before that we heard from 34 Life Path stakeholders, as well as six uh, people from our larger community. Um, and those that we did interview um, in, in what we call the larger community were those that, don't that um, are not necessarily part of the Life Path community. Um, and some, some had connection to Life Path in some ways, others um, did not, but everyone that we spoke to at least had uh, reflections that they were able to share as it related to um, the concepts of racial justice and the overall Christian church. Um, all the information that we gathered um, were finalized and put into recommendation form that we delivered to the vision team on March 15th. And um, that's the same day that we officially adjourned our last meeting of our task force. Um, and these same recommendations were sent out to the larger Life Path community, you all, uh, by email uh, this past week, this past Wednesday. So. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Amanda to provide a little bit of an uh, understanding of what those recommendations um, encompass. Thanks, Ian. Can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, well, I first just want to thank Ian and Lori for your leadership on this. It was an honor to be part of it and to uh, for those of you that did engage in the interview. This is kind of like the movie trailer. Um, I'm not going to read the recommendations because we really want you all to read it. Um, but I really just kind of wanted to summarize the recommendations and some key themes to reflect 
the spirit of the recommendations. Um, so first and foremost, we're encouraging us to foster and maintain conversations about race in safe, open, and sacred spaces. We believe at the core that these conversations will encourage our church to learn and share perspectives that will help us better understand and love one another. We also believe that these conversations are a natural addition to the environment that God has already created here at Life Path, where humility in learning and unlearning, that was for you, um, <laughs> Sabrina, uh, emphasizing gracious assumptions and turning to wonder rather than judgment will only be strengthened. Finally, we believe that these conversations can help to address barriers and hindrances to having healthy conversations on race. In the recommendations, we do not encourage division, blame, or shame, but rather conversations where people feel safe or process through what can be a difficult subject matter. And also that that might mean as white people taking up less space. Another aspect of our recommendations involves encouraging intentionality and creativity and how Life Path can integrate concepts of racial equity and racial justice into the core of who we are as Christ followers. This includes con uh, considerations of how we define the Life Path community, how we make decisions as a church, how we build relationships with other churches and with Aspira, and the way we express the fullness of God's kingdom both within the church and in our work in the world. Um, that's the end of the teaser. If you have read it, I really encourage you to reread it um, and sit with it. Uh, the cool thing about seeing the ladder is that you can't unsee it. I think it's Lori. So um, I, I just want to add just a just an encouragement to all of us to read it. It's a lot of words, and it's a lot of concepts, and a lot of thoughts are, are um, expressed in there. And um, I just, I just want to ask that you will um, just sit with it and pray about it. Pray that God gives you uh, discernment. Um, pray that he uh, opens up a way where you can participate. Nobody's going to do everything. Nobody can do everything. Um, but everybody can do something that brings this forward. And um, I, I, I want you to find, like, one meaningful thing in there, just one meaningful thing that's, that really speaks to your heart. And I'm going to give you an example of the one that speaks to my heart. Mine is where we're going to partner with some other churches that are not uh, white-led to do some ministries with them and, um, and learn and listen and be a part of what, what they're doing. And that makes me excited. I, I just want to go, oh, right, let's, let's, get, let's get to work. Let's do something. Let's do something that we didn't think about, you know, and that's what makes me excited. And, and maybe there's another part of it that makes you excited. And I, that's what I want you to think about, like, and pray about. What's going to make, what's going to prick your heart and make you excited to do? I want everybody to try to come up with your own idea about how you can implement. Or, or I know everybody's got ideas here. I mean, people have been thinking about things, and they haven't said it to anybody. Like they know about a ministry somewhere that's 
really cool and they would really like to participate with it and they haven't told us. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So come up with some ideas because like I said, we're not your ministry leaders on this. We're, we're task force, our, our, you know, our recommendations, we're done now as far as this goes, but we're not done being part of the community of the church, right? So, um, All right. So I think one of the things that Lori was just alluding to is the fact that, um, and this is mentioned in our recommendations. We, this is not; these aren't recommendations for the pastoral team or the vision team. They're recommendations for the church as a whole, the church as a whole to process through, to pray through, to discern through, um, and to think about how we want to act collectively on this. And I think that's just a, a really, really key um, and important um, aspect. Um, so I, I do just want to reemphasize what Lori was saying. You know, read them and pray, pray about what, what this means for you individually, but also for you in terms of what, what you would like to bring to the church, ideas or um, leadership, um, what, whatever that looks like. I, I know that the uh, vision team will be looking seriously at these recommendations at our next, um, uh, our next meeting in April, but again, this is for the church, this is for, for all of you. Um, and then, Lori, I think there was one last thing that you wanted to write. Um, I just, if you have any questions about this, Please don't go to the pastoral team to um, ask your questions. You know why? They don't know it either. They don't know it any better than, you know, we on the task force are the ones that can answer your clarifying questions about what does this sentence mean or what did you say here or, or what did you intend with that, okay? When it comes to theology and church direction, that's where our pastors can come in. Okay, but as far as clarifying questions about the actual document, please direct them to one of the task force members. Okay, um, and um, we will be available like today, or you can contact us on, on the phone or, or whatever, and we'll be happy to talk about any questions that anybody has. Um, can I end us in prayer? Absolutely. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that everything that has to do with reconciliation, restoration, resurrection, justice, are all things that are close to your heart. And we want to be made people where that's close to our heart, too. I pray that you, um, I pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment. You will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel what is important to you. I thank you for this time that we've been able to talk about these really important issues. And I pray that you will just put on our hearts the things that you would want us to know and the direction in which you would want us to go now. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we thank the uh, team, all six of them, for the work they've done? And thank you, Britt and Lennon from a distance.
And like, I hope this fills you with hope. This, this fills me with hope, the, the journey that we're on. I just think, you know what it reminds me of? This is why we baptize people. I know this is a weird jump. This is why we baptize people in water. Because the journey of discipleship, of, of surrendering to Jesus, is this internal spiritual transformation, but it's also really like down and dirty. Like you get wet. It's physical. You know, and so, so that's kind of what we're excited about doing. Um, I, I promise I don't have any more to, to preach. I'm just going to give you this one word and one slide. Um, what we are doing as a church, oh, come on, is a sociological concept over the next year or whatever called norm engineering. That's not a dude's name. Um, norm engineering, it means that what we're doing is we are creating new norms as a church, where it's normal to talk about stuff like this. It's normal to be able to voice um, uh, things that maybe uh, feel like are impossible to talk about, maybe outside of the body of Christ. Or when they do, it always leads to, you know, uh, butting heads or something like this. We're trying to engineer some new norms as a community where this is just the way we function. Of course we learn to listen in better ways. Of course we say, we, don't, we have blind spots. How can we learn? Of course we begin to partner with other brothers and sisters from um, other perspectives or traditions. Beautiful. All right, so uh, I lost my iPad. Can you do the final, that final slide? Yeah. So in order for this to work, you heard some of these encouragements, but I just want to encourage us, as we look at people who have been changed by Jesus, changed by the power of the cross toward people of reconciliation, then it will lead us down in these coming months to turn toward wonder instead of judgment. We must ask good questions instead of making absolute statements. We must take a posture of learning, and we must be okay being uncomfortable. And if we do that in the character of Jesus, as we all move toward Jesus together, we're going to see absolutely beautiful things happen.